Welcome to QArt Foundation's Critical Distance podcast series, produced as part of Meeting Artists' Needs, a professional development program for artists of all ages and backgrounds. QArt Foundation's Meeting Artists' Needs program is generously supported by the Joan Mitchell Foundation. You're listening to Artists and Gentrification, Community Development Experts on Improving Neighbourhood Stability. Welcome everyone, thanks for coming out tonight. I'm Kevin Castle, the Public Programming Fellow here at the QArt Foundation. This is the fourth event in the series, If It's Not Work, It Must Be Play, Discussions on the State of Work in the Arts. In this series, we will host experts, including labor economists, urban planners, activists, and financial consultants, to analyze and respond to issues facing artists and their professional practice. During our last event, Ben Graney from the Artist Financial Support Group shared their work on educational debt and financial self-determination for artists. His talk and those that came before it in the series are available on the QArt Foundation website as well as our iTunes podcast channel. Tonight we will talk about artists and real estate. Like financial stability, Access to workspace is one of the essential and fundamental components of artistic practice. Yet long-term creative space is becoming increasingly elusive. Many New York artists have publicly called attention to the problem of short periods of residency and a now decentralized arts community. We can trace this discussion back for literally decades, and it is still in the news today as artists move further and further from their geographic centers as a result of development and competing interests in a limited geographic area. Certainly, we can point to positive aspects of development, perhaps diversification of income, the activation of space, and economic growth. But we can also see that development is not polite. It is not driven by motives of kindness or utility. It can be driven by many things, but among these are opportunity and a numbers-based analysis of potential. Opportunistic thinking in urban development is often accompanied by the use of language that negates the current value of a place. Most notably, this attitude appears through the use of language alluding to frontier settlement, such as the seemingly heroic title urban pioneer, or by describing an urban location as the frontier. And also phrases such as blank slate and there's nothing here. These are all statements which transform the inhabitants of a place into ghosts and do not register their activity or ownership of concrete things. Not surprisingly, the residents of neighborhoods described in such terms are not protected from eventual displacement when competing interests set their sights on a well-placed property or a scheme starts to approach maturity. Artists famously move residences and workspace in response to the availability of low-cost space, often subsidized by development schemes. As the arts community decentralizes in pursuit of affordable space, are we participating in or worse enabling a pattern of movement that has detrimental effects? Our panelists tonight represent three approaches to community and urban development in New York City, and will discuss the problem of gentrification from their perspectives. They will share their work, 
along with strategies for improving the stability of our neighborhoods. I'd like to add that these are very distinguished panelists, so I have drastically reduced their bio biographical information, and I encourage you to look on our website for more. Tom Mangotti is Professor of Urban Affairs and Planning at Hunter College and the Graduate Center, City University of New York, and Director of the Hunter College Center for Community Planning and Development. Roseanne Haggerty is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Community Solutions. Launched in 2011, Community Solutions works to help communities solve the problems that create and sustain homelessness. Paul Parkhill is the founding executive director of SpaceWorks, a nonprofit cultural community development organization dedicated to expanding the supply of long-term affordable rehearsal and studio space in New York City. The panelists will each speak about their work in more detail, and roughly one hour from now, we will have approximately 30 minutes of moderated discussion with the audience following their presentation. Please join me in welcoming, welcoming our panelists tonight, speaking on artists and gentrification and how we can improve community stability. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I, I'm here to set the context uh, for the discussion about artists and community. And I'm gonna repeat the subtitle from my book, New York for Sale, which some of you may have seen. It's Community Planning Confronts Global Real Estate. And on the front cover is a banner, which you can see in Lower Manhattan, in various places. New York City, real estate capital of the world. Okay. That's a clue about what's driving artists out and communities out and what is spurring a new wave of gentrification and displacement. Uh, I'll go easy on the term gentrification because what it really is, because some people uh, don't like being put into a pot of uh, gentry, but uh, the What's really the problem is when people are forced to move out of their communities. Um, when they have no alternatives, in particular. And the history of New York City is one of displacement of people who have fewer alternatives. So this did not just start uh, with the latest round of real estate development. It begins in the very, very, uh, at the very beginning of New York City's history in Lower Manhattan uh, when uh, people were forced out in successive waves when rents went up and um, land prices went up. Uh, we are now in the midst of a major real estate boom around the world not just New York City, but every major city in the world is receiving uh, gigantic amounts of excess capital. Over a half of all of the excess capital isn't going into banks, because they're sort of bursting at the seams. 
it's going into real estate. And it's speculation, even more speculative than it has been in the past, especially over the last 10 years. Um, and so you read in the New York Times about the, uh, the towers on West 57th Street that are one-third empty, the uh, $100 million condos, uh, the pied-à-terres uh, owned by investors from all over the world who visit a portion of the year. Uh, but that's, that's only the most obvious. It's happening at the fringes of Brooklyn, Queens, it's happening in Long Island, it's happening all over the metropolitan region. Um, um, homes are being bought up. Blackstone Group is buying up single-family homes that were, uh, people were forced out during, during the uh, subprime crisis. So uh, global investors are going wherever they can and that is churning communities and pushing people out. Now, uh, first tripwire is we are told that this is an inevitable process, that it's really organic. Things always change, right? Well, if you look at the history of New York City, there has always been change in development and new housing and people are, and that's how Brooklyn, Queens, and the outer boroughs grew. That's how the suburbs grew. So why not just accept it and adjust and accommodate? But another really important, and this is part of the other part of this story, is that people don't just sit back. They resist, they fight to stay. And this is particularly pungent for peoples who have a long history of being displaced from Africa, who were forced here as slaves, uh, from Latin America, from Puerto Rico, who were forced out by corporations who, um, who uh, destroyed their local means of production. Uh, their farms, their small businesses, and force them to migrate. And fast forward to the free trade agreement with Mexico. Why the huge immigration from Mexico? The North, North American free trade agreement destroyed large swaths of agriculture in Mexico and uh, displaced people. And Mexican people come to New York City, move in, and lo and behold, find themselves in the most precarious situation and are among the first people to be displaced. So, uh, but they fight back. And I could talk all day about the examples of fighting back against displacement, uh, but let me just give a few examples from recent decades. In the 1950s, the Federal Urban Renewal Program uh, provided funds for local governments, New York City was one of the first to raise their hands, uh, to uh, clear what were called slums. Slums were the neighborhoods where poor people live, 
disproportionately black and Puerto Rican people, and they were among the first to go. But there was an enormous fight against the federal urban renewal program, and there were battles on the west side, lower east side. Some were lost and some were won, but people fought back. And they stayed, and we stay, Nos Quedamos has been the, the slogan uh, around which people organized. New York City, the real estate capital of the world, is the only major city in, in the United States that has rent regulation. And why is that? Because 100 years ago, <clears throat> labor and community groups organized and pressured the legislature to control rents. And um, rent control has been on and off. It's been weakened and strengthened uh, throughout the last century. But how do you explain that? You can only explain it because people stood up, organized, and said, we need a way to be able to stay in our communities. And one of the biggest elements in rent control, rent regulation, is eviction control. It's not called eviction control, but that's the most important element of rent regulation is a landlord cannot arbitrarily evict a tenant. So uh, um, another example is community planning, where people don't just say, we won't move, they say, we have an idea about the future. We have our own vision for the future. The Cooper Square um, urban renewal area was proposed in 1959 in the Lower East Side. And tenants got organized. They fought uh, against the urban renewal plan. They developed their own alternative plan, the Cooper Square alternate plan and they presented it to the city. They fought with the city for 10 years. Finally, they got the city to recognize it. It took them another 40 years to gain control of the land. And uh, the Cooper Square Mutual Housing Association and Land Trust now um, uh, has 340 units of low-income housing that includes many of the original tenants uh, people who would not have been able to stay in a gentrifying uh, Lower East Side. Um, and I, I think your point about uh, how people in the neighborhood can be invisible to newcomers, I do hear uh, from time to time. I'm on the board of the Cooper Square Community Land Trust. Um, there's, a, there's a giant breach between the old timers in the neighborhood and the newcomers. And it's not just age, ethnicity, race, it's also there's a divorce in human relations. Now why is that important? Uh, you know, I don't care if we all love each other or not. The point is, how can you organize unless you talk to each other? And I'm asked to talk to people who are, who are concerned about organizing to stay in their neighborhoods. And the most obvious thing that people can do and usually don't do 
is talk to each other. Gentrifiers, the newcomers have to talk to the old, the old folks. And um, you can't, there can't be an invisible part of the community. Uh, and not because we all have to love each other, but if you don't work together, you can achieve nothing. You will be isolated as uh, separate individuals, everybody seeking their own future. And maybe that's kind of one of, the, one of the important lessons we get from the histories of community organizing and fight back against displacement is um, we professionals, artists, intellectuals, we're all about creating things with our own brand and with our own name. And we work as individual artists and intellectuals. At City University, this explains why we're all fighting with each other, right? And, but um, if you think you're gonna be able to stay without talking to your neighbors and without organizing, uh, without a collective effort, uh, then you're probably going deeper into your individual uh, solution. And you can do it as long as you have the, the, the money, as long as you have the resources. Um, so my lesson is, is that for uh, uh, saving space in a community, uh, you have to, I, I think that there, there's two uh, fundamental aspects of, of the arts and two fundamental aspects of land in the city. And they're parallel. One is a use value. Art has a value in and of itself, regardless of its exchange value that is, its value as a commodity on the market. Land has the same thing. The land that we live on, uh, the land that uh, uh, not just of, of our places of residence, but um, the open space, the parks, the schools, everything that makes up a community, has an intrinsic value regardless of what it sells for on the market. But we face real estate, which is entirely based on a market value per square foot, okay? So negotiating that divide is really critical and I think the objective has to be to move us away from commodity, commodities, land as a commodity, art as a commodity, education as a commodity, which is a fight we're fighting now at City University, um, and, and move towards developing communities as decent places to live, where everybody has a right to housing, uh, a right to education, and a right to decent health care. So, thank you. Okay. Um, Tom, that was amazing, and uh, I, um, 
I think I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit after that incredible sort of macro presentation. Um, so I'm Paul Parkhill. I'm the director of an organization called Spaceworks. Um, and I put together a presentation um, which is mostly uh, a, a series of questions. Um, so bear with me. Um, I think the initial question that uh, I think we're all kind of here to talk about was, is what role do New York City artists play in neighborhood development patterns? Sorry, I need to move this so I can actually see it. Um, related to that, do artists play a role in gentrification? Uh, conversely, can artists help stabilize communities? Is there another paradigm that we can look at uh, that's a little bit different from the one that's, uh, that seemingly has been playing out? Uh, should artists even have to worry about this? Is this just yet another burden that's kind of uh, lumped on artists who are already kind of facing fairly adverse circumstances in New York? Um, what is an artist anyway? Um, I think there are a lot of different definitions that we could talk about that I'll try to go into a little bit. And then uh, what Spaceworks? Um, of this entire list, the only one I really have an answer to is uh, the last one, so I'm going to start there. Um, Spaceworks is a nonprofit organization that was founded about three years ago to build affordable workspace for artists, uh, uh, affordable long-term workspace for artists, both visual and performing artists. Um, we're interested in ensuring that the production of art uh, remains integral to New York. Uh, I think nobody is concerned about New York becoming suddenly uh, sort of a second tier cultural place, but I think the, the production of art is still, I think, uh, is in question. I think it really requires affordable space for, for that to continue. Um, we strive to build long-term connections between artists and communities, and one of the ways we do that is to work with community-based organizations, residents, and cultural partners. Uh, I wanted to go through a few of our projects just quickly, just to give you a sense of sort of where we're at now. Um, again, we're a less than three-year-old organization, so the projects that we've done to date are pretty small kind of pilot projects. Um, but I'll talk a little bit about some of the bigger projects we're looking at as well. So the first project we opened in 2013 was in Long Island City. It's four rehearsal spaces. We have about 375 active card holders right now. We've had several thousand artists use the space to date, and we've worked with a variety of program partners, including the Chocolate Factory Theater, Mari Nostrum Elements, and Queens Theater, all of which are Queens-based organizations. Um, these are some of the studios that uh, we, we uh, have at the space. Studio D is a music uh, rehearsal space, and then we have three other theater and dance performance, uh, sorry, theater and dance rehearsal spaces. Um, we've also developed relationships with a variety of Queens-based uh, sort of folk arts organizations. This is Calpuli, uh, Mexican dance company. And then we had a block, a block party uh, uh, last summer in conjunction with Make Music New York, which was another way to sort of get the community involved with what was happening. The second project is in Gowanus. It's where our offices are. Um, it is two visual arts studios, four co-working spaces, uh, also opened in 2013, we had about 55 applications for two uh, visual arts studios, and that was without sort of a great deal of marketing. Um, we worked with the Brooklyn Arts Council and Arts Kiwanis. Abby is here. Um, wave, Abby. <laughs> um, she runs an incredible... Uh, uh, so this is actually one of the co-working spaces. This Paul is here, too. So this is 596 acres. She's in back. It's the whole gang is here. Um, we uh, also did open studios in October. I uh, very much encourage you to come out to Gowanus in October if you are free. It's quite an event. Um, the third project that we're just opening now is the top floor of the Williamsburg Library Branch. That H at the end of Williamsburg is not a typo. That is, in fact, how they spell it on the library. Um, just to, wanted to point that out. Um, it is uh, four visual arts studios and two rehearsal spaces in a, uh, por a portion of the library that was um, 
essentially un unused. Um, we are planning to open this spring. Uh, we had 218 applications for three visual arts studios. The fourth visual arts studio there is a uh, program studio. So we're working with a local art school called La Colda Beaux-Arts, which is uh, providing programming for the library community, uh, as well as teaching classes there. We're also working with El Puente, which is a Williamsburg-based uh, community arts organization and the BPL itself. Here are some lovely renderings of how we anticipate this space might look once it's actually up and running. A couple of the visual art studios, they are pretty amazing spaces. And then uh, just, a, just a quick note on a couple of the larger uh, projects that we're looking at right now. Um, uh, the next project is in pre-development. It is uh, a former school building on Governor's Island, it's building 301, sort of down there in the yellow circle, kind of at the bottom of the ice cream cone. Um, it is gonna be 43 visual arts studios and a larger rehearsal and performance space. We're hoping that it opens in 2016. Uh, we're hoping to break ground this year. And because there's not a residential community on the island, we've been working with a variety of cultural organizations around the city to try to uh, develop a sort of five borough presence there. So that includes Flux Factory in Queens, Casita Maria in the Bronx, and Haiti Cultural Exchange in Brooklyn, among others. That's what the building looks like from the water and a couple of other lovely renderings. Um, and then, oh, sorry, and then here's the floor plan. So you can see they're mostly uh, relatively small visual art studios, a couple of larger ones on the sides. And then I wanted to just mention, this is probably a little premature because we're still kind of in negotiations for this project, but this is a really good illustration of, I think, how our model is evolving. Um, this is the former Fordham Library site, which has been vacant for about 10 years. Um, the, since the library moved up the hill to a new facility. It's about a 35,000 square foot building uh, that we are really hoping to develop into a community cultural hub um, as opposed to just a space for artists. We're hoping to integrate a variety of uses including visual arts studios and, re and rehearsal spaces but also a kind of home base for a variety of Bronx-based cultural organizations. We're hoping to do fi affordable film production facility for, in uh, for independent filmmakers, an LGBT center. So it's really an evolution of, of the model from kind of just art space to a kind of more community integrated cultural hub. Um, a few of the strategies we use when we're uh, kind of developing projects, I think the first thing we've tried to do is to talk to artists. This is something we do on an ongoing basis, but we do it sometimes more formally. So these were some focus groups that we did in the Bronx a couple years ago. We've done others in Brooklyn. Um, uh, we talk about sort of what affordability means, kind of what space needs uh, are. Um, I think it's very important to kind of keep that conversation going. We're also uh, looking to bring on a community organizer uh, focused on the Bronx initially, but uh, ideally to work in all five boroughs. Um, and I think sort of thinking about uh, community organizing not only from the perspective of uh, kind of organizing neighborhoods and residents, but also thinking about artists in that mix and sort of what the conversation can look like, I think is really interesting to all of us. We've also done community asset maps for all of the neighborhoods that we've worked in. Uh, so these are uh, sort of efforts to document what cultural resources are available in different neighborhoods as well as what community organizations are there. So we've put you know, rehearsal and performance spaces, art studio clusters, um, et cetera. This is Long Island City. We did a couple others for projects that we were looking at, neighborhoods we were looking at in the Bronx. Okay, so now, so now onto the much harder questions 
to answer. Uh, so, and, and basically, I, I, I kind of chickened out on this do artists gentrify neighborhoods because I just basically created a list of questions that I, I hope are provocative. Um, I think, you know, among the, the, the questions that come up when you talk about gentrification, you know, there's an assumption that there's a privileged class that is moving into a neighborhood. So I think it raises the question about whether artists are, in fact, a privileged class. Um, I think it also raises questions about how you're defining artists and whether artists come from outside of the neighborhoods where they live or work or whether there is, uh, in fact, a base of artists within neighborhoods already. And uh, there's a, a group called the uh, NOCD, which is Naturally Occurring Cultural Districts, that does a lot of work around uh, kind of working with uh, local arts organizations that are embedded in low-income, often minority communities, and sort of really emphasizing that. I think a lot of the sort of traditional assumptions about what defines an artist are not necessarily uh, consistent with what they've found in those neighborhoods. Um, are artists transient? And if so, is this a choice? I think this is kind of related to the last question. Um, is gentrification a useful term? Tom was talking a bit about this. Um, I have friends who refuse to use the term and only talk about displacement. You know, I think it's an interesting question about whether, um, I mean, I think this is related to the next question, you know, is there an aesthetic or social component of neighborhood transformation versus just an economic one? And I think, you know, displacement is obviously the end result of the gentrification process, but I think it's also interesting to look at sort of what that process is and whether there is a kind of aesthetic, uh, kind of social, maybe superstructure over that. Um, how do artists impact local economies? I, we've done some econometric analyses. It's actually um, pretty encouraging about how uh, uh, much artists kind of engage with local economies and, and what a positive impact they have. Um, and how do artists in, interact with neighborhoods and how intentional is this interaction? And I think kind of building that intentionality is a big part of what we're interested in. Um, so rather than answering any of those questions, I, I created some pie charts. Um, <laughs> And these are really just, really to try to, to, try to answer one of the, those first questions, which was, you know, are artists uh, a privileged class? And I think these, these are uh, admittedly small samples that we've used, but um, are based on uh, both the visual art uh, lottery uh, questionnaires that we have, as well as some of the performing arts application processes. So these are for the visual arts. Um, the one on the left is Gowanus, which again was about 55 applications. The one on the right was Williamsburg. I think th this was the monthly studio budget that people identified as what they um, could afford. Uh, you know, most of our studios we price between three and four hundred dollars a month. I think the market is substantially higher than that. But if you look at this number, or if you look at this pie chart, you know, really what people have as disposable income is substantially lower than that. So there's definitely a disconnect. Uh, in addition to which, ooh, category name. Hmm. I'm not sure what happened with that pie chart. Um, well, there were numbers there initially, uh, but you can look on, you can look at the Williamsburg chart instead. Um, the income from art that most uh, that most artists generate is remarkably uh, is a remarkable remarkably low percentage. Um, so, um, sorry, this one didn't really translate very well. But um, in general, people are not making a, a living based on their art. Um, and this, I think, is probably the starkest of the pie charts, um, which is for the performing artists who use our Long Island city space. And you can see that fully a quarter of them earn less than $16,000 a year, and another roughly quarter earn between sixteen dollars and uh, $26,000 a year. So um, this one got a little messed up too, but basically it's, a, it's 
from what we're encountering, a very low-income population that we're working with. So uh, just some parting thoughts about uh, the way we would like to position ourselves vis-a-vis -vis this question about um, artists and neighborhoods. I think it's really uh, important to reposition artists as agents of community stability rather than community transition. I think there's a, a long history of artists kind of uh, coming into neighborhoods briefly, um, usually, usually involuntarily, uh, uh, and affecting some kind of transformation. Um, I think trying to shift to, um, in this case, longer-term spaces. We're trying to develop spaces that are going to be there for 20 years or longer. Um, really has a significant impact on, on both from a project level and from an artist level how that interaction takes place. Um, look to build a more inclusive definition of an artist. Again, back to that NOCD uh, observation, one that incorporates artists with community roots. Um, build stronger connections between artists and existing residents. Build stronger connections between artists and existing local economies, including industrial businesses. Um, I, I put this in, this, I feel strongly about this one in part because I worked for an organization for 12 years before I worked at Spaceworks. That was, uh, in, it's called the Greenpoint Manufacturing and Design Center that was focused on building affordable workspace for small manufacturers. And I guess my sense is that uh, artists and in small industry, it seems to me, are perfectly aligned in terms of their space needs. A lot of the small manufacturers that we worked with were, in fact, artists who had translated their art into a, a business. Um, I think where it gets tricky is that um, it is when workspace sort of becomes de facto residential space. And so I think compatible uses from a, a workspace and, uh, uh, consideration often becoming compatible uses when spaces turn into residential space. I think there are all kinds of reasons that that happens, but I think that that's where the, where the tension starts. And then finally, um, look to develop space that breaks down the physical and psychological barriers between what happens in the studio and what happens out on the street. So really creating this kind of transparent, just kind of breaking down the walls of, of uh, the studio space and creating an opportunity for, for that conversation to take place. So uh, that's it, and I'll pass it on to Roseanne. Well, I'm delighted to be here with uh, Tom and Paul, and uh, before Paul worked for GMDC, we worked together, so it's a, it's a small kind of uh, improvement without displacement world. Roseanne was my first mentor. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, in any event, uh, I'm going to be speaking about our work uh, in Brownsville, Brooklyn. And uh, I guess more thematically, uh, what um, uh, uh, is at risk in the city's poorest communities as um, the threat of gentrification and uh, displacement as, as a consequence looms. Now, uh, our strategy in Brownsville, where we've worked for seven years, uh, is really to um, form alliances with uh, small businesses, with uh, arts organizations, and uh, particularly just uh, uh, form a collective response to advance the community, you know, even in advance of uh, the more recent uh, uh, kind of threats of displacement on our borders. When we started working in Brownsville, it was uh, in response to uh, many years of work on homelessness and realizing that to have any kind of end game, one needed to look at the poorest neighborhoods of the community um, uh, of, of New York City and any community look at what was going on in those neighborhoods that was making individuals and families uh, at risk of losing their homes in the first place. And so in Brownsville, 
It had long been one of the neighborhoods with the highest rates of family homelessness and one of the highest rates of, of risks of homelessness. And this is well before anyone thought that Brownsville was a place that development was going to seek out. So the problems that we started working on around stabilizing the neighborhood, looking for strategies to improve it, uh, really predated you know, the, the, the current threats that Tom uh, uh, described. Um, as I mentioned, we've been working in Brownsville for about seven years now, and the approach uh, we uh, took from the, the early days of our involvement uh, when we began as community organizers, really trying to understand the issues that were causing families to be um, uh, at risk of displacement, even though Brownsville has more public housing than any other neighborhood in the United States. It's sort of counterintuitive with all that affordable housing, why were so many families uh, losing their homes? Well, they're, they're complicated and interconnected risks uh, from long-term poverty and health issues to poor educational uh, 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 outcomes and uh, just uh, public housing becoming sort of the, the, the last uh, kind of uh, uh, stop on a cascading set of risks that many very poor families face. So when we began working there, we quickly realized that uh, this was not about one organization making heroic efforts with residents to you know, figure out uh, anti-eviction strategies, uh, but uh, uh, what would probably best protect families from becoming homeless was a better functioning neighborhood. That led us to a collective approach and mobilizing not-for-profits, residents, uh, bringing groups to the neighborhood in response to community uh, members identifying uh, alternatives to uh, uh, involvement with the criminal justice system, more support for early childhood, jobs, financial literacy. So we've brought together uh, now about 30 organizations who regularly work together and collaborate on their work in Brownsville. And this has grown, uh, fortunately, to include a number of arts organizations and a number of city agencies, uh, particularly Small Business Services, Economic Development Corporation, Probation, and NYCHA and the police. And so the um, the work that we have been uh, collectively shaping is around moving the needle together on some of the big risk factors that keep Brownsville a pretty unstable place without any new investment threatening uh, uh, residents there. And what um, the big drivers of change that we have collectively identified are working on uh, the neighborhood's uh, high risks around crime. Uh, very significant unemployment rates, and how to improve the physical environment in a way that creates uh, a more robust neighborhood from an affordable housing standpoint, along with amenities for culture and for small business development and uh, job creation. Uh, the, uh, the critical uh, pieces of the work have come to involve a strategy to uh, sort of uh, maybe um, inform, push NYCHA to uh, develop uh, uh, approaches to retrofitting and improving and preserving uh, public housing in the neighborhood as opposed to sim simply focusing on new development sites. Uh, in Brownsville, the, the multiple public housing developments there, there are a total of 10 and over 40,000 of the neighborhood's 90,000 residents live in public housing. But Brownsville wasn't on NYCHA's screen as far as a place where there could be market rate development. It's still uh, a neighborhood that's perceived as, as a, 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 I think, too, too outside the, the market um, uh, uh, forces. But what we've been working on with residents, particularly of Tilden Houses, is a plan to um, show how 
existing buildings can be retrofit and preserved as the first step in preserving uh, uh, the housing of residents in Brownsville. That, that more imminent threat of just the condition of NYCHA buildings and the instability from overcrowding is the one that we've been working on first. But together with that um, improvement strategy of existing housing, we've been working with residents and other uh, partners on developing our own proactive housing plan uh, yeah, that would uh, sit within but uh, be uh, community generated, uh, the mayor's housing plan. Uh, there's certainly uh, quite um, a large opportunity for new housing development, new affordable housing development, given available air rights around NYCHA and some other uh, unbuilt urban renewal sites and city-owned properties. But we are looking to create um, a strategy that is uh, 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 going to keep more of the uh, community's land in uh, public ownership or in not-for-profit ownership or potentially in the ownership of a, uh, a land trust. Uh, and a second uh, part of our strategy is working on a collection of important historic buildings that are uh, now privately owned. They've been held off the market by landlords, certainly indifferent to the community for many years. But um, these, these critical buildings, all of which played um, important public purposes in the past, uh, precinct buildings, uh, school building, a bank building, a theater, uh, we're looking to acquire and develop as, in, uh, as cultural facilities and to provide space for uh, community, needed community amenities in addition to affordable housing. Um, there is also a whole stream of work that our team of partners is advancing around creating a cultural district on uh, Belmont Avenue, uh, an important uh, market street uh, from uh, the early part of the last century. Uh, we hope that um, in moving that plan forward, uh, with pop-up stores as a prelude to more permanent uses for um, arts, culture, uh, small business development, that we be, uh, can begin really cementing a place for the arts in the community as a catalyst for economic development and uh, greater st st uh, stability for the community. Um, the, the other things I'd like to mention in terms of um, the way that uh, uh, we're um, kind of trying to wrestle with the whole picture of the neighborhood is uh, 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 using measurable time-bound goals as a way of holding our collective of uh, not-for-profit city agencies, residents, and uh, increasingly some of the small businesses and, and business interests in the community together. Uh, we are in the early phases of planning uh, a three-year effort to move uh, three, well, probably by the end of uh, 2017, uh, move an additional 5,000 uh, community residents into the workforce. Right now, Brownsville has an um, unemployment rate of about 15%, which is um, almost double the rest of the city. And uh, um, it's really uh, what we're seeing more and more, a mismatch between people's motivations and, and interests and the design of the existing workforce system. Uh, uh, so it's a, a huge effort of bringing employers to Brownsville doing uh, more uh, effective matching of people's skills and interests, working to optimize the city's existing workforce system, uh, creating a much more integrated approach that uh, uh, also pulls in um, uh, training and uh, uh, the school system. So uh, it, just to give you a flavor of it's not just housing alone, but um, the other things that make a community uh, functional and, and a healthy and stable place. So while Certainly the risks of um, displacement from new investment coming into the neighborhood are, are risks that 
people are conscious of. Um, the, the, the greater risk is the one that's been there for years and years, which is uh, unaddressed poverty, uh, housing that's in poor condition, uh, disconnection from effective public services. And uh, we, we hope that we have a little bit of time in Brownsville because so much of the land is publicly owned still and so much of it's owned by NYCHA to uh, really design and tell a different story about how a community can take a more proactive stance in the threat, uh, uh, against the threat of displacement and actually use um, market forces to kind of shape um, the way investment will happen in the neighborhood by uh, uh, actually uh, controlling what happens with uh, much of the neighborhood's housing stock and its significant buildings. This uh, gives you a sense of the um, uh, effect of public housing and the land uses being very different in this neighborhood from many others. Uh, 10,000 units of public housing in about uh, uh, a mile and a quarter square area. And uh, uh, the, the foreground project uh, of Brownsville houses, I'll just see on the upper right uh, uh, corner of the screen is one of those significant buildings I mentioned, uh, a former school building. Uh, but uh, uh, it's an unusual place in that uh, such a small percentage of the housing stock is uh, privately owned, and that, of course, is you know where the the greater threats of, of um, uh, displacement arise. Uh, as long as NYCHA can. Uh, be functional and uh, uh, financially stable, uh, you know, that's um, the best hedge against displacement in the community. But NYCHA in its current state with the current condition of uh, tenants' housing is unacceptable. So our effort has been around creating um, a plan and mechanisms to improve housing and preserve it for existing tenants. Okay, what I'd like to do now is open up the discussion to the audience. Uh, so questions for the panel in the back. Okay, I said that I would repeat that for the recording, but that was actually a very, that had a lot of layers, that question. Um, I don't want to flatten it out. So we're, you're asking about um, the transition from a commodity-based approach to building community relationships, and um, um, can you? Yeah, can like what does it look like to actually make like work with a community and for a community Okay, so what does it look like to actually work with and for a community as opposed to being a disparate entity? I'll tell you what we are doing in Brownsville, and we're kind of learning our way into this, and it's evolving all the time. But um, uh, we have a number of arts organizations who are partnering in the effort, everyone from Mark Morris and BAM to Groundswell that uh, does amazing mural projects around the city to um, a, a group of local artists that we incubated as, a, as their own uh, collective uh, called Made in Brownsville. Uh, and, uh, uh, it's been a series of public art projects where uh, especially young people from the neighborhood, a lot of them who've been involved in the criminal justice system, are basically given a chance to um, learn uh, how to execute murals, how to uh, participate in staging public art projects and, and, and uh, performance uh, programs in public spaces. Uh, we've had um, 
We opened a, a, a sort of a, a market event space last October and uh, had a number of artists volunteer uh, around uh, working with uh, young people in the community and our own, you know, kind of uh, paid staff to figure out the um, uh, ways in which to capture community history and issues in uh, a series of events and permanent installations. So it's really uh, principally the neighborhood young people, um, organizations that have been using art as a mechanism to um, kind of communicate, to express, to teach, uh, and uh, also finding some very talented local artists and helping them organize into kind of a a known force for creative activity in the neighborhood. Can I, can I just add something? There is also, I think, another way that artists get involved as individuals. Uh, I, in my experience, I've seen individual artists just get involved, go to community, going to community meetings, just like anybody else. It's secondary that they make some money doing art, you know. Uh, but they fall in love with their communities. They say, I want to stay here, I like it, and I like my neighbors, and uh, they talk to their neighbors, and then they start going to meetings, and they come out uh, to fight for a, um, to save a public facility. Um, I mean, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of different things people are struggling over and working on, but they do it not necessarily as part of, not as an artist, but as an individual. And, you know, that works too. I, I want to um, sort of riff off of your question a little. A little bit. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, in the focus groups that I mentioned and in some other conversations that we've had, there is always this divide among artists. There are artists who have a social practice or are community oriented in one way or another who are always adamant that that needs to be a critical part of, you know, of any project. And then there are artists who don't, who like really want to go into their studio and work or go into their studio and rehearse. And they're equally adamant that that should not be sort of something that's required, uh, you know, that artists shouldn't have a kind of uh, uh, responsibility to engage that way if that's not what they're doing already. So it's a really interesting question. And we've struggled with it a lot, too, about whether to mandate that as, you know, to mandate sort of community service. We develop all kinds of program partnerships. and try to develop community partnerships. But it's a, it's a tricky thing. You know, if you're not an artist that, that has a social practice, um, kind of, you, you don't want to force it. You kind of don't want that. You don't want to make somebody go out and engage with the community if that's not sort of what they do or what they're interested in. So it's a, it's a, it's a tricky balancing act, I think. I think from our perspective, creating projects where there is that kind of opportunity for the community to know what the artists are doing and for the artists to engage with community at different levels and sort of at the level that they're comfortable with um, makes the most sense um, and that, you know, mandating it gets really tricky. Um, it's obviously something that we're very interested in, but um, anyway, I just want to throw that out there. Yes, actually, I was going to ask if that had any bearing on the way that you distribute space within SpaceWorks. Um, you know, allocating a certain amount of area for visual artist studios and then um, prioritizing performance in, in other areas and also does it influence your selection of artists? 
It is not a criteria for, so the, the visual arts, uh, the visual artists we select are selected through a lottery process. Um, currently, we, the only real criteria we have is active practice. We don't curate, the, we don't curate for the most part. Um, we tend, we'd like to prioritize folks who are local, um, but apart from that, so far anyway, we haven't curated and we haven't created criteria for sort of social practice or, or uh, kind of community involvement. Um, uh, and in terms of the breakdown of space, no, I mean, we don't, so we're, it's a little, it's, it's a bit like a affordable housing system, you know, it's a lottery system. You apply and you're, and, and there's an intake panel. Um, but I think, you know, as, as our projects evolve into these kind of more community cultural hubs, I think we are thinking more about what that looks like, how to get sort of, uh, cultural organizations kind of working with the artists who are there and, you know, sort of build that conversation. For us, I think it's really about opening up the conversation and making sure that people are aware of what's going on and there's a, there's a lot of different levels at which people can be talking, um, but less about mandating particular kinds of, of interactions. Um, yeah, I just want to bring up another way that artists are in studios and that is that they um, commute and they don't live there. Um, I'm in Long Island City and there's just a lot of buildings where um, we're mixed with light manufacturing and so when, when you move into a manufacturing building, or one that used to be a manufacturing building, they're not really part of the community in the way that someone that lives there is. They go and have lunch and they have dinner. Um, and actually artists have more of a community among themselves. So if you have Long Island uh, City Arts um, open studios in May, a lot of areas in New York have that. Um, so they're creating a community that is also very important. It's not necessarily connected to the people that are living in brownstones there, which there aren't that many in Long Island City. It's mostly manufacturing. It's a sort of a different situation. So I'm wondering if you guys could talk about that at all in terms of what you have already discussed. This question is about artists who are commuting to studio locations that might be in manufacturing areas, such as Long Island City. and. Um, community participation there, where you're working in a relatively isolated area. You may be engaging in local businesses as far as lunch and dinner, but um, you're not um, as easily accessing the residential components of that community. And um, artists may also be developing um, their own communities in those neighborhoods. Uh, so what is your what is your comment as far as integrating well, there? Is that, does anybody here have a studio in uh, Industry City in Brooklyn? I used to. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So um, there are artists in low-cost uh, industrial areas uh, in studios. Industry is being displaced from New York City. Industry City is on the on the mark of big investors who want to move in there. And uh, so uh, I, I would think the artists in those studios ought to seek solidarity with small manufacturers who will be displaced uh, as you know, the high-tech uh, um, industries come in and they convert it to office space and then there are um, converted uh, residential lofts and you know the you know how it goes uh, so so that's where that's where there is another community small manufacturers and they are 
they are threatened. And they lost big in the last wave of mega development over the last uh, uh, 12 years with all of the rezonings. Uh, a lot of industrial areas were rezoned for residential. And uh, Williamsburg is, uh, most, most small industry is gone. We don't really have the situation yet in Brownsville, but um, Paul has been out and we would very much like to uh, create in some of the spaces we're working on, spaces for Space Works and other arts organizations. Uh, I think that it's, um, you know, as Tom said, you know, there's kind of natural solidarity, I think, with some of the small businesses and individuals who are really engaged and thinking about, you know, the, the future of the community from a, an intentional planning standpoint. And um, you know, we have heard nothing that uh, suggests that people would would uh, fear artists coming into the community if it were in the context of a, an intentional plan. Yeah, I mean, I I, <clears throat> I absolutely agree uh, with all of that. And I think, as I said, you know, I think artists and industry are are natural allies as long as they're all in workspaces together. I think. Um, you know, it's uh, there. Part of the gentrification process, as it's unfolded, is that uh, you know the small the small industrial businesses also get displaced in the process. Where you know, in the same process that the artists get displaced. So I think um, building those kinds of connections, e even if it's not a social connection, I think building the the sort of the the uh, kind of political connection with small industry to sort of say, look, we're both endangered species here. <clears throat> And we need to make sure that you know there is, for instance, zoning that protects these kinds of uses. That not everything is up for grabs, you know, because everything will in in this market everything will go residential if given given the chance. So, and, and pay attention to uh, zoning proposals. In the Bloomberg administration, the geniuses at the city planning department came up with a designation called mixed use zoning. And it allows both residential and industrial uses to coexist on the same site. And a lot of folks said, oh, wasn't that wonderful? That's what we want, mixed-use communities. We want, we want to be able to have live-work uh, situations. It was a scam, and they're still selling that scam all over the city. If you, if you own the land, I mean, this is all about land, right? It's all about land speculation. If there's a landowner and they can rent to an industry or they can rent to residential uses, who do you think they're going to rent to? Because you can make 10 to 20 to 30 times more in rent from a residential use than you can from an industrial use. So it's, it's, it's uh, one of many zoning scams. So I think people have to pay attention to the big rezoning East New York, right next to Brownsville, is now uh, uh, confronted with a major zoning proposal that could uh, uh, effectively displace uh, affordable housing in that neighborhood. And, and there's a little piece of Brownsville in it, too. Just a question. Is that kind of vice versa as opposed to what happened in Soho, as far as the result of the zoning manufacturing that the and have to be used over the mixed-use phase. There's a lot of the artists move in there to be the scene that kind of created New York's art scene, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
responsible. So I thought maybe there's both of them as being using that manner, but initially it was responsible for kind of that she lived in because it was just accurate. Yeah. Uh, you raised such a good point, and I think it really highlights. Uh, did you want to repeat his question? Uh, um, this gentleman uh, pointed out that uh, the system can work in reverse very helpfully, you know, for artists. Uh, that uh, you know, manufacturing space can flip to residential and benefit artists, although, you know, uh, the affordability often doesn't hang on for long. Uh, but um, I think it points out that these are fluid. Um, uh, behaviors, yeah, that uh, Tom was pointing out that it took 50 years to get uh, the community's vision of the Cooper Square actually locked in. That sounds scary, like, well, it takes too long, but that the cities change and neighborhoods change and like we don't seem to do a good job of anticipating change, uh, course correcting when it's getting out of balance and I think that's more the message that, you know, People rush to neighborhoods because they're interesting, because artists have made them that way, and then push the artists out and become kind of bland, less interesting neighborhoods. And so, why don't we have a mechanism that can better balance? So, that's a little problem on this. So, do you feel that artists are kind of the responsible for education? Just as creating the very early stage of the initial interests? Um, I think that, you know. The notion of blame is probably misplaced. I think that uh, uh, and the gentleman just said, you know, are artists responsible for gentrification? Um, I think you know, that uh, uh, any uh, group that um, you know is willing to take more risks to open up uh, new living environments, um, you know, there are often un unintended consequences. And again, like we should learn more, you know, like, okay, if this is now a, you know, a, a more mixed neighborhood, how do we write the rules more thoughtfully so that we don't kill the golden goose, you know, so. Okay, so yeah, I, I think, um, I find this also in talking to a lot of, um, especially young people uh, who discover that they are gentrifiers and that there's a conflict and, uh, and they feel guilty about it. I say, please, no, don't feel guilt. Guilty, guilt is not a, an emotion that really uh, leads to anything constructive. Feel responsible as a responsible citizen, as a responsible resident, uh, to do something that, that will change things for the better and um, uh, and, then, and then comes my, my next advice, which is, do you talk to your neighbors? Uh, so talk to people. Uh, get to know the history of the neighbor. Get to know the history. You realize there's probably a group in that neighborhood that has fought a lot of battles over the last decades and has a history and knows how to organize and they know how to get to the elected officials. Uh, or, you know, they, they have a lot of experience, so you, you, got, you can learn an awful lot and then uh, chart, chart a way forward. And it does take a lot of time. It's not, we, we come from a culture that looks for quick fixes, right? Um, and we, we think we're gonna find a solution and implement it and all of a sudden, everything, it, all the problems will go away. Uh, yeah, it can take 50 years. It can take, uh, and you know, 
it, it goes back to also real estate, right? Real estate is about making profit and uh, making it within a short period of time, making their, you know, the landowners make the money when they sell the land and they walk away with the dough. And uh, building communities, it doesn't work that way. You walk away with it over hundreds of years and it's you, your children, future generations, you're, and you're building for uh, an entire society, not to just make a, for the quick fix. And, and that's, that's kind of what we're, we're often sold the quick fix. And the big quick fix is development, development. We need more money to, to build new housing. New housing is gonna solve the problem, right? Especially for people who don't have any housing, wrong. The new housing that gets built is for luxury. The private market does not build for people who need the housing the most. They don't make any money, all right? So the, all of the big zoning changes are in order to encourage new growth and new development. Uh, but they jack up land values and the increased land values jack up rents so that Tenants are being forced out by the landlords so they can convert to condos. And landowners are building new condos that the existing community can't afford. So it's, yeah, it's a quick fix. But it's a fix that's going to force you to move out. It's going to displace you. I've got a question for Tom. Um, just uh, in the struggle to be for something rather than just against things, uh, because we know how this process works of, of you, know, a, you know, a neighborhood is kind of discovered and then the market pressures grow, uh, this mechanism of a community land trust or uh, new ways of, of, of ownership that actually gives the community a stake in the long-term affordability, I think maybe you know, while this is, you see it in Europe and like Vermont, you know, I think that uh, it's becoming something I think that we should really be considering in, in New York City neighborhoods that, you know, rather than be surprised when we, you know, make investments in a neighborhood and then suddenly, you know, the rents are shooting out of control, there is a mechanism that can, I think, balance things and it's the land trust. And you were mentioning that you've been part of the Mutual Housing Association and Land Trust. Uh, in Cooper Square, and um, uh, Paul is in back, right? Uh, Paul and I went had a meeting earlier this week about uh, um, uh, prom promoting a um, a new la a community land trust in the Rockaways. This morning, I was in a meeting in East Harlem. The East Harlem Community Land Trust is under it is being born as we speak. And, uh, but basically, what, what's a land trust? A land trust takes the land out of the market. It's, um, it's no longer a commodity that can be bought and sold. It's, uh, uh, it's essentially a deed restriction that says it can only be used for certain purposes. Um, and the, the purposes are affordable housing. 
that's clearly defined uh, in the lease. The land trust leases the land to either a cooperative, a mutual housing association, or it could be even to individual homeowners as, for example, there are a bunch of them in Burlington, Vermont. Burlington has one of the biggest land trusts in the country. Um, Dudley Street in Boston. Um, it's a growing, it's a small but growing movement around the country and I think it offers tremendous opportunity, um, uh, especially because it's about community. It's about building community. It's not just about providing a house. It's, it's a, an alternative to the so-called American dream, which is a very individualist solution to housing. I want my house and my, uh, you know, on my half acre plot with a little garden and everything and a fence around it. A land trust is a community solution. And it's appropriate for New York City because we have so many communities. And, and I was hearing uh, recently that, I don't know if it's happened yet, but there is a discussion about creating commercial land trusts that would actually protect mm -hmm. artist studios, small manufacturers, and I think that that's a movement that um, needs a champion here, is that, you know, one of the, one of the truly sad things is, you know, New York has had a pretty good record, more so than other cities, of subsidizing affordable housing, but if it's, if, if, if it's not long-term uh, rent restricted, like, the people who developed it you know, they have to wait their time for 20 years and then they get a windfall and everybody's rent goes up and people get displaced. Or if it's a home ownership program, the first buyer gets a windfall and then it shoots into the market stratosphere. And these mechanisms that protect, you know, communities and that protect taxpayer investment in, you know, creating affordable housing and, um, you know, commercial districts that, that uh, benefit from economic development and public funds invested, I think it's a perfectly smart and reasonable question for us to be asking about, you know, if we want to protect the character of our communities and affordability in a more balanced city, that we need different legal mechanisms. Just on the last topic, the question always is, what do we mean by long term? Mm -hmm. We know from Michelin that terms have an ending. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I have a different question, but I, I just sort of throw that out there. Yeah. How, what do you mean when you say long term? Yeah. Uh, maybe we should probably each uh, answer that. I think, you know, like, let's think hard about whether there's a day we can imagine when there aren't going to be people who need affordable rents. Like, no one more than me wishes we could crack the code on poverty, but there will always be 20% of the population that's making less money than the other 80%. And that if we're going to be making public investments, that we should be really thinking about you know, permanent affordability, which does not mean like unreasonable permanent rent restrictions, but that the, the, the rents grow at a slower pace. Yeah, I mean, from our perspective, uh, as long as we can get, you know, I think in that sometimes that's only 10 years, sometimes that's longer. I think we would like to create permanent affordability as well, but, you know, we have to kind of deal with the properties that we're dealing with, and sometimes, sometimes that's not an option. But I think, uh, to Roseanne's point, I think permanent is the goal. So, so my, my larger point is because that would go to the land trust as a mechanism for, for longer term. Um, what, one of the takeaways for me of this discussion is that the best defense is a good offense. 
right? Yep. That, that mm -hmm. in the long run, there's going to be reinvestment. You're not going to stop that. Um, some of that is the market. Some of that is seeded by the <coughs> policy. Um, but what you're all talking about are how do you put in place mechanisms to protect uh, and improve the lives of people who are there. Mm -hmm. So my question then goes to the, the other point that I find very interesting is this notion of uh, in integrating the newcomers with the folks who were there, particularly this notion of ghosting that you mentioned or the invisible population. It seems to me offhand that artists, and I, I, I use that word very broadly, uh, might have a, and maybe not all artists, but artists that have an uh, in interest in being part of the social fray as part of their art, maybe have a very specific role to play in making visible uh, the people who are there. And I'm thinking, obviously the mural movement is, is, is one major one, uh, there's a wonderful project I've heard of in West Oakland where people made uh, street furniture that sort of brought the invisible people into the public realm and let newcomers know, hey, there's some folks already here. Uh, it's ongoing, but I'm kind of curious if that's, that plays into any of the discussions in terms of specific ways that artists can get involved. We just had a, a, an example in the last month in Brownsville that nobody planned that goes to your point, sir. Um, uh, uh, Humans of New York. Uh, photographed a young uh, a young boy uh, on his way home from school in Brownsville, who you know described eloquently you know his, his, the the culture at his school and you know the uh, emphasis it was placing on success um, because um, failure in Brownsville means you become another statistic in the criminal justice system, and uh, his school. Um, and this, this post in Humans of New York became a sensation and uh, over a million dollars was donated to his school in Brownsville so that those young people could all go on college visits. And so here is just like random artist, as, as you're saying, Tom, it doesn't always have to be planned. Random artist opens up an awareness of the community and the lives of young people there. Yeah, and I think, you know, from our perspective, you know, art really is a lingua franca. I mean, I think it's, it's it's a, an incredible mechanism for engaging people, and there there are all kinds of cultural resources in every neighborhood in New York City. And I think, kind of bridging, you know, artists and those existing resources is a great way to build really strong communities. So, but it's a matter of figuring out how to do it. Sure. Yeah. So it's a little bit different in every case. So we. Um, uh, we have leases on, so the couple of the pilot projects that I showed you, we have leases, they're in private buildings um, for uh, the buildings that we work on that are city owned. We have longer term license agreements, um, which is a structure that the city frequently uses. Um, they have sort of less teeth than leases. And then we are looking ideally to find, you know, uh, opportunities to acquire property. But as a, you know, as a young organization, uh, we tend to have to partner with more established entities to do that kind of thing. So we're kind of piecing it together so far. I just want to piggyback on what you were saying before, um, to have artists and anybody who's coming into a community, that's so called judge or not, um, besides just talking with the community, to actually patronize the independent small businesses that already have existed in those neighborhoods, to make a conscious effort to not go to Starbucks, to go to the independently owned business. That's how I would imagine. I'd like to recap a couple of very important questions and comments from the audience. One was um, 
that the that artists in a community have an important part to play, which is making the existing community visible in in the process that we were talking about, where the two do not meet. Um, and and this other commenter has urged artists to patronize the existing businesses and the small business small businesses in the neighborhood and find those allies and support them as opposed to going to the franchises which may be coming into the neighborhood and and uh, leading the turnover of business of the uh, business community um, and then also one of the questions was related to the model of ownership that is used uh, by spaceworks Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. And um, we have sort of a variety of different tactics. A lot of it's aspirational, as you can sort of see from the project. You know, the, the projects that we're looking at in the Bronx are, I think, um, ideally going to do that in a much more comprehensive way than the kind of pilot projects that we've done so far. Um, but in every project that we have, we work with a, a community-based partner or more than one partner. So we always have a, a program partner um, that is rooted in the community that is providing resources uh, to the community. Um, so for instance, in the Williamsburg Library site, we're working with both the library and this art school that I mentioned, which is providing uh, free programming to library uh, users um, sort of over every year. Um, and so they're, they're creating uh, kind of a, a mechanism for bringing library users into art space. Um, uh, and so, you know, and, and in general, we're trying more and more to kind of build more and more of those partnerships. We're not a programming entity ourselves. We're really about creating the space, um, but we want to create opportunities for um, kind of communities to interact with the cultural partners that we have. So that's one example. But again, I think down the line, we'd like it to be a much more kind of comprehensive approach. And I think the, this. Um, this effort to get a community organizer involved who's not only focused on uh, traditional community organizing activities, but also really looking at artists and artists' communities and trying to figure out ways to build those lines of communication, I think will be a really interesting opportunity to kind of expand on, on that work. This question is referring to uh, Industry City or spaces like Industry City. Wondering if there's a way to bring some of the some of a, uh, a narrative about the past into the present and remember what those places were and and their significance. Specifically relating to Industry City, there are many potential uh, opportunities for artists to unite with small businesses, industries, and the residential community. Uh, there are groups in Sunset Park who are fighting against, uh, to be able to stay in their housing. Uh, you know, uh, buildings being bought up by slumlords, uh, uh, equity funds, uh, investment trusts, and uh, people are fighting and to stay, and there, there's a lot of the workforce for Industry City comes from Sunset Park. People walk to work. You know, this is the other idiotic thing that the city does. Oh, we 
we want walkable communities, right? We want good, uh, walkable communities. Well, they just destroyed Williamsburg, which was a walkable community. I mean, people, a third of the uh, population in Williamsburg walked to work. Now they all line up to get in the subway in the morning. Okay, so what's more sustainable, environmentally friendly? Uh, you know, according to the city, it's the new regime that's uh, sustainable, but no. Sunset Park has the potential to really be a truly mixed-use community. And so I think that there are many, many potential allies. But people have to really organize. Uh, there's a group in Sunset Park that's fighting to gain uh, access uh, to the waterfront. They were promised in the last administration that there would be a park on the waterfront and it would be accessible to young people who live in Sunset Park. Look for that park, it ain't there. Uh, go to Williamsburg. Folks in Williamsburg who were rezoned five, uh, 10 years ago were promised a park on the waterfront. There's a meeting and demonstration this week saying, where's our park? It's promised in writing by the city. They didn't do it. So. And so the struggle's not over, but Williamsburg was a big fight. And honestly, we lost. We lost, yeah. Uh, we lost that fight. Uh, not entirely, because there are portions of Williamsburg that are still, still have a lot of industry and a lot of light industry and still have a, a fair amount of affordable housing. But we just did the numbers. 20% um, of the Latino population disappeared in 10 years, displaced by the rising rents and so forth. So, but, but there, there's still that, uh, that potential, and, but the only thing that's gonna do it is to organize and to, f and you know, every time the city comes a, up, up with one of their crazy ideas that they try to sell, um, um, calling it mixed use and sustainable and, every other nice little catchword they can think of, you have to challenge it. You have to challenge at every, uh, at every step of the way. Developers are very sophisticated and they're very clever and they really like you. They will, they, they will convince you that their beautiful designs are gonna make your community uh, much better more sustainable, going to bring jobs and all of that kind of stuff. And they hire architects and designers to uh, paint these pastel visions of the future. And uh, if I were working in industry, I I would be. Uh, if I saw a pastel like that, I would say, "Well, that's not my neighborhood. Get out of here. You know, it's not my neighborhood." Yes. And they were trying for 20 years to get this park open. Mm -hmm. there, there is a small portion of that park open now. Good. They had a ribbon cutting in May. And uh, they are still working hard to get more open, more playgrounds for children. And they're actually going to be doing an event there in April. And I'm not sure what the topic of the event is, but they do 
environmental justice work, right. um, food justice work, I believe, and they were... Youth development. Yeah, they're, they're also doing, they're doing all kinds of projects, so that's a really good group to align with if you are in Sunset Park and interested. And I, I just saw the director, Elizabeth Yampier, is an old friend who was talking about how their philosophy, now, in, in the Latino community, they have a strong political commitment to preserving the industry. First, because it's jobs for the Latino community, but secondly, because, uh, uh, but, but also, that the industrial area should not be a dump for toxic waste, which it has been, for polluting industries. And the city has a policy that's very deeply embedded, that you have these heavy industrial areas where you put all of the junk, uh, waste treatment plants, sludge treatment plants, which they tried to put in Sunset Park and they fought and, and beat it. Uh, and, and, uh, and when they did the waterfront uh, plan and waterfront zoning, they exempted industrial areas from open space requirements. Well, that's insane. People in industrial areas, workers have a need for open space, just like everybody else. And why should, why should they be exempted? So having a park in an industrial area was an alien notion to the urban planners when it was first proposed. But it makes perfect sense. And it also is another connection between the residential and the industrial uh, portions of the neighborhood. And the trick is how to do it without forcing out small businesses and small industries, you know, so it's not a sort of a, a chic new destination that's going to jack up rents and force people out. Could you mention the name of the organization again into the microphone? Uh, the organization is UPROSE, United Puerto Ricans of Sunset Park. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's the oldest uh, Puerto Rican organization in the city. Uh, or in Brooklyn, I don't know. <laughs> Elizabeth. Ever. Elizabeth <laughs> City, this might be a new paradigm developing, but Five Points was bought by a developer and the community forced them to have galleries and art studios on the first floor. And I hear that a lot of the developers, this is going to be a new thing that they're, that they're going to be pushing. And I'm not sure if you've heard about this, but it's very promising. Mm -hmm. And not in good news. <laughs> yeah, I think that there are some discussions about trying to figure out new mechanisms both for <clears throat> sorry both for um, creating funding mechanisms for these kinds of spaces but, but also carve outs kind of uh, you know a la kind of inclusionary zoning of one kind or another um, probably connected to density bonuses as it typically is but I think that there is um, there there is some I think interest in carving out space for non-residential uses within rezoned era areas so but watch out, the first floors are subject to flooding. <clears throat> I think our point is also it has to be affordable. You know, it has to be, it, it, you know, it's not just a land use issue, it's an affordability issue. And so in order to make it 
um, affordable to light industry or to artists, you know, you need to make sure that it's it's capped at a certain certain rent. And there's longevity in that cap. Also, I think Industry City is a very good example of that, where uh, there was affordable space provided, but the length of that <laughs> affordability was very short. All right. Well, thank you so much. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you to our, our guests this evening, to the audience for traveling, and to our panelists. This has been an excellent and enlightening discussion. Thank you.